Hello, and welcome to a more perfect podcast. Today in America, it seems like the common man has absolutely no say about the way things are done inside of his own country. Today, we're surrounded by corrupted institutions of government and culture, which act as mere faces for the ideologically driven, freedom-crushing onslaught that's being waged upon the United States. Over the past few years, and especially since Joe Biden took power, we've been surrounded by falsehood. Today, people are seemingly powerless against the soft totalitarianism that encroaches around them and snuffs out their freedom, all the while profiting off of their fear. For the 50th episode of this podcast, I've taken my time to bring y'all something that I believe is truly special, something that I've really never done before on this podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be reading something. This episode's going to be all about political rebellion for a new age. We're going to cover everything in this podcast, all the way from the creation of a new counterculture, which is honestly something that we've begun to see in America over the past few years, to the resistance of the common everyday person. We're also going to uncover some truths about the nature of the system in which we live and how that system broadly functions, because it's not what you think, and if I do my job right, you're going to come away after this episode with a, with a new perspective on the political landscape in general after I'm done, because reading this essay that I'm going to be reading on the podcast brought me a new perspective on things, and I'm going to be reading it to you guys with my own commentary. So this episode is probably going to be pretty long. Again, I've never done anything like this episode before on the podcast, but hey, it's the 50th episode, so I want to do something special. But first, before I get into all that, I want to remind you guys about the sponsor of this show, Surfshark VPN. Surfshark VPN is a virtual private network that encrypts your internet traffic, so you don't have to worry about hackers stealing your sensitive passwords, your usernames, and intercepting your sensitive financial information when you pay for things online. With an encrypted connection, you are secure on the internet, and there is no better place to get it than the link in my podcast description because with my podcast, you can get a special deal on Surfshark VPN. You get 82% off and your first two months completely free. With Surfshark VPN, you are secure on the internet and you don't have to worry about hackers stealing your sensitive information or any other entities trying to spy on your internet traffic. There isn't a thing we do nowadays that isn't on the internet. So if you're not browsing securely, you're just asking for disaster. Get Surfshark VPN today with the link in my podcast description and get 82% off plus your first two months free. So if you don't like it, you got nothing to lose. So seriously, get Surfshark VPN today with the special link in my podcast description, support the show to help me to create new content that you guys will love. Today on the podcast, I'm going to be reading an essay titled The Power of the Powerless by Vaslav Havel. Vaslav Havel was a Czechoslovakian dissident inside of the Soviet Union. Havel was a member of the very first 
open manifestation of dissent inside of the Soviet Empire, titled Charter 77. According to The Economist, Havel collected 242 public supporters for Charter 77, which was a declaration that highlighted, get this, the Soviet government's breaches of the international human rights standards to which they had notionally subscribed, which means that they had just signed them on paper, but they were not actually putting them into practice. It sounds kind of familiar nowadays, right? Because today you have the United Nations Human Rights Council, which has China, Cuba, Venezuela, as well as others on the UN Human Rights Council. Like, seriously? Countries that blatantly violate human rights today still are notionally subscribing to this. So that's just, that's an aside, but Charter 77 called the Soviet government out on this, and it was the very first open manifestation of dissent inside of the Soviet empire. So why is that important? Well, the reaction to it was as you'd expect. Those who failed to denounce the document brought severe punishments on themselves and on their families. One of the three founding spokesmen died during a grueling 11-hour interrogation. Havel himself spent five months behind bars in 1977 and a further three months in 1978. And that crackdown is important because due to the crackdown, Havel was inspired to meet up with some Polish communist dissidents on the Czechoslovak-Polish border. These Polish dissidents and Havel and his own Czechoslovakian dissidents were going to write a volume of essays on the subject of freedom and power. Keyword going to write because the project was never actually realized and the power of the powerless, the essay I'm going to read today, had to be published separately because Havel was arrested and sentenced to five years in prison for continuing to stand up against the regime of lies that was the Soviet Union. So just to sum all that up, The Power of the Powerless was written under extreme duress and persecution inside of the Soviet Union by a Czechoslovakian communist dissident named Vaslav Havel. It is one of the greatest things I've ever read and one of the great works on political rebellion and freedom, in my opinion, of all time. Now, one more thing before we start reading the essay. I just know someone out there is going to come to me and criticize me for implicitly making a comparison between the United States today and the Soviet Union. Look, I am well aware that the Communist Party doesn't rule in the United States, but it is impossible to deny the leftist ideologies are increasingly making inroads here in the States, and it's becoming more and more and more difficult to exercise things such as the freedom of speech, even the Second Amendment, without facing consequences. It's all started with political correctness, and once people became politically correct, then it just got worse and worse and worse from there, and now our educational system is garbage, and the diversity, equity, and inclusion infects almost every single cultural institution, and now government institution in American life. We have 
the health and human services department of the United States government embracing radical transgender ideology. They're literally advocating for children to undergo surgeries to affirm their trans identity. I won't go into details about that here, but I will link those documents. Needless to say, we are not the Soviet Union. However, leftist ideologies are seriously entrenched in the United States. Basically, in a lot of ways, we're only nominally not the Soviet Union anymore. It's really gotten that bad. And with that being said, I'm going to start reading The Power of the Powerless by Vaslav Havel. Now, if you really would like to immerse yourself in this podcast, I'm going to be linking a copy of the essay in the podcast description if you'd like to read along. However, I'm going to be skipping around here and there, but you should be able to follow along just fine, so I will link the essay in the podcast description. Again, if you would like to read along as I am reading. Havel writes, A specter is haunting Eastern Europe. The specter of what in the West is called dissent. I like to pause there and note that that's actually a mockery of Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto where he writes, A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. So he's already digging at the communists. I just thought that was kind of funny. Anyways, he goes on. This specter has not appeared out of thin air. It is a natural and inevitable consequence of the present historical phase of the system it is haunting. It was born at a time when this system, for a thousand reasons, can no longer base itself on the unadulterated, brutal, and arbitrary application of power, eliminating all expressions of nonconformity. What is more, the system has become so ossified politically that there is practically no way for such nonconformity to be implemented within its official structures. All right, we're going to pause there. What does that mean? Havel was saying that at that time in Czechoslovakia, the Soviet system could no longer base itself on outright banning speech. It was chilled speech, rather. There was a chilled effect over the entire country. Instead of oppression being outright, oppression was covert. And then when he says that the system has become ossified politically, he's just saying that the system has become redundant, that there's no room for dissent inside of the system. There's no opposition parties in 1968 Czechoslovakia. And here in the United States today, ossified, meaning stale, brittle, redundant, old, and non-moving, is roughly what it means. Ossified is an amazing term for our current system, in, in my humble opinion, because the current political process in the United States is certainly, it's certainly brittle and non-moving. It's controlled by special interests and useless establishment politicians who aren't concerned or are just in denial about the forces tearing at the soul of this country and tearing this country into pieces and as, as, as well as the problems of the common person. I mean, did you see the $40 billion 
that we gave to Ukraine, all the while common Americans are suffering because of inflation. Our system is ossified indeed. And indeed, as Havel writes, there is practically no way for nonconformity to be implemented within our official structures. All those who spoke out, all those who voted against this $40 billion were outvoted by all the establishment hacks who just want to line their wallets while America suffers. It is, it's horrible. And, and, and people wonder why somebody like Donald Trump was hated in Washington. It's because he was an outsider. It's because, again, there is practically no way for such nonconformity to be implemented within our official structures. Indeed, our current political system is ossified. At any rate, Havel continues. He writes, Who are these so-called dissidents? Where does their point of view come from, and what importance does it have? What is the significance of the independent initiatives in which dissidents collaborate, and what real chances do such initiatives have of success? Quick pause there to note that when he writes about independent initiatives in which dissidents collaborate, he is talking about what I refer to as a counterculture, right? So the independent initiatives in the current moment might be outlets such as the Daily Wire and publishers, which publish non-woke children's books like Brave Books. And Daily Wire also has a publishing company now. So those are some examples of the counterculture that I'm referring to and what Havel refers to as independent initiatives in which dissidents collaborate. Moving on here, though, he says, Is it appropriate to refer to dissidents as an opposition? If so, what exactly is such an opposition within the framework of this system? What does it do? What role does it play in society? And what are its hopes? And on what are those hopes based? Is it within the power of the dissidents as a category of sub-citizen outside of the power establishment, to have any influence at all on society and the social system, can they actually change anything? And another pause here. What is he saying? He's, he's, he's basically framing the essay out here, right? He is asking a lot of questions about dissidents and the impact that they have on a system. What defines a dissident within a system? Is, is a dissident even opposed to the system? Because if, if you think about it, there, there could be something called a, a controlled opposition, right? In which the system, this is, a, this is a little bit of a complicated concept, but let's see if I can explain it. A controlled opposition is when a system creates a quote-unquote opposition that's only opposing the current narrative in face, right? So behind the scenes, or in effect, they work together with the ruling ideology, but they give people the illusion 
of a choice. That would be a controlled opposition because they're opposing the ruling narrative on the surface, but in reality, they're just working with them. So perhaps a senator like Mitt Romney would be controlled opposition, right? He says occasionally the um, standard Republican talking points, but in effect, he votes with the Democrats and he votes for Trump's impeachment and he does all these things that are blatantly, blatantly against the will of the party, against the even the majority of the Republican senators, right? He votes, he caucuses with the Democrats, right? We call them rhinos today. That would be a controlled opposition. An opposition on face, but in effect, not opposition at all. So, getting back to Havel. When he asks, is it within the power of dissidents to have any influence at all on society and the social system? And when he asks, is it appropriate to refer to dissidents as an opposition? He's questioning the nature of the dissident and he's asking what kinds of people are dissidents to the current system. And the things that they create, these, these, the, this counterculture again, can that counterculture actually change anything about the system itself? Can it actually do anything or is it all a waste of time? This is framing out the whole essay, right? As I said, this episode is going to be about political rebellion, political dissent. What does it mean to dissent against the ruling ideology? Does that dissent do anything? And what is a counterculture? And under what conditions will that counterculture actually change anything in our current environment? So thus, Havel concludes, he says, I think that an examination of these questions, an examination of the potential of the powerless, can only begin with an examination of the nature of power and the circumstances in which these powerless people operate. In other words, we can only understand, we, we can only answer these questions by examining the nature of the system itself. All right, so here is where the words really started to leap off the page for me. This is about the moment where I knew that I was, I was really reading something special and I, I, I had to make this into an episode. So you can thank, you can basically thank this section for my uh, near two-month hiatus because this is, the, this is the thing that inspired me to work on this. Havel continues. Remember, this is describing the system. In Havel's case, the communist system that he lived under, and through analogy, describing our current system. And it's, it is amazing. Havel continues, he says, I am afraid that the term dictatorship, regardless of how intelligible it may otherwise be, tends to obscure rather than clarify the real nature of power in this system. We usually associate the term with the notion of a small group of people who take over the government of a given country by force. Their power, 
is wielded openly, using the direct instruments of power at their disposal, and they are easily distinguished socially from the majority over whom they rule. So think of like a authoritarian king, right? And all his subjects would say, your highness, and he would be wearing the robes and he would be wearing the crown, right? He's easily, he is easily distinguished from the majority. You can tell this man is the king. He rules. And how does he rule? By, as Havel writes, using the direct instruments of power at his disposal. Havel continues, he says, one of the essential aspects of this traditional or classical notion of dictatorship is the assumption that it's temporary and lacking historical roots. Its existence seems to be bound up with the lives of those who established it. It's usually local in extent and significance, and regardless of the ideology it, use, it utilizes to grant itself legitimacy, its power derives ultimately from the numbers and the armed might of its soldiers and police. The principal threat to its existence is felt to be the possibility that someone better equipped, in this sense, might appear and overthrow it. So maybe a stronger king with a bigger army. Havel writes that even this very superficial overview should make it clear that the system in which we live has very little in common with a classical dictatorship. In the first place, our system is not limited to a local geographical sense. Remember, the Soviet Union was very, very, very big. Rather, it holds sway over a huge power block controlled by one of the two superpowers, and although it quite naturally exhibits a number of local and historical variations, the range of these variations is fundamentally circumscribed by a single, unifying framework throughout the power block. Not only is the dictatorship everywhere based on the same principles and structured in the same way, that is, in the way evolved by the ruling superpower, but each country has been completely penetrated by a network of manipulative instruments controlled by the superpower center and totally subordinated to its interests. I'd like to pause here again and note two things. So number one, the nature of Havel's system where everything is controlled by a fundamental organizing principle set forth by the central party. That doesn't happen here, right? Our state governments, thank God, do not have to take orders from the federal government, right? We have federalism here. So that is a difference between Havel's situation and ours. But honestly, it's really not that important it's just a technical difference. And the second thing I wanted to note is that where, where he says, and, 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 I, and it's, it's going to require a little bit of a stretch, but not particularly, especially if you've been listening to me for quite some time. He says, each country, so in our case, each state, has been completely penetrated by a network of manipulative instruments controlled by the superpower center and totally subordinated to its interests. So by and large, you can see the analogy here with the mainstream media and the Biden administration, because the mainstream media is in effect, at least at this point in time, by and large, the propaganda arm of the state. 
I've called CNN state propaganda multiple times on this podcast because they blatantly lie along with all the other liberal media outlets to cover for the failing, incompetent, and extremist Biden administration. Yes, indeed, each state in our union has been penetrated by what Havel calls a network of manipulative instruments. Now that that's all understood, he continues. He writes, For even though our dictatorship has long since alienated itself completely from the social movements that give birth to it, the authenticity of these movements, and I'm thinking of the proletarian and socialist movements of the 19th century, gives it undeniable historicity. These origins provided a solid foundation of sorts on which it could build until it became the utterly new social and political reality it is today, which has become so inextricably a part of the structure of the modern world. I'd like to pause there and point out something that is very, very important. It must be said that the social justice intolerance, that the extreme leftist policies of the Biden administration are not just symptoms of the current moment. They aren't just because we have bad policy writers now. This isn't one of those passing things. Rather, the pervasive leftism, whether that be social justice in the universities, even up to the, I would argue, the extremism of the Biden administration, all of it has historical roots. All of it has deep, deep foundations within wokeness, right? Because wokeness itself is the product of over 100 years of evolution. As I've been over before on this podcast, wokeness comes from Marxism and Marxian thought. So I went over Marx and then Gramsci in one of my episodes, and we know that it went from Gramsci to the cultural Marxism of the Frankfurt School, and then from the Frankfurt School, it was carried on with Marcusa, and then from Marcusa to his apostle, Angela Davis, and then kind of like as an aside, but like they're all kind of thinking the same thing with um, the Comedy River Collective statement and the roots of what became intersectionality, and then there was another strain where dude by the name of Paulo Freire picked it up and started this critical pedagogy thing, which is the roots of the, the, the hellscape that's going on in our schools right now. Point being, and look, I'm, I'm not here to explain the entire woke family tree, but that's, a, that's at least a rough sketch of it. I mean, come on, like, you gotta give me some credit here. Um, all that's off the top of my head. But anyways, point being that All of this crap we're seeing today is not new. It's not new. It's got its roots. And as Havel writes, these, and and let me just, let me just make it a little simpler and read it into our moment, so to speak. The origins of Marxism provided a solid foundation on which wokeness could become the utterly new social 
and political reality that it is today, which has become so inextricably a part of the structure of the modern world. So that was the important part of this paragraph, but the paragraph continues for a little bit more, and there's one more point to make here in this last section. So the essay reads, A feature of those historical origins was the correct understanding of social conflicts in the period from which those original movements emerged. In other words, Marxian conflict theory. The fact that at the very core of this correct understanding, there was a genetic disposition towards the monstrous alienation characteristic of its subsequent development isn't essential here. Okay, so what's that saying? So, when like first off, when I say Marxian conflict theory, I'm obviously talking about the Marxian dialectic. And the correct understanding of social conflicts in the period from which those original movements, meaning Marxism, emerged, this correct understanding of social conflicts would be, you guessed it, historical materialism and class conflict, class struggle. So, what does all that mean? It means that in the very theory of Marxism, Marxism itself is predisposed towards alienation, towards oppression, towards disaster. It's not just that in every single place socialism has been tried, it hasn't worked. Everybody knows that. Or at least everybody with a brain who's not a tanky on Reddit knows that. It's the fact that the theory itself is predisposed to those kinds of things. Marxism itself is at root a seed of evil that sprouts into a calamity every single time it is watered by a new generation of leftists. So with that long rant over, we should probably move on because we have a long ways to go in this essay. Havel finishes up this section by stating that the profound difference between our system in terms of the nature of power and what we traditionally understand by dictatorship, a difference I hope is clear even from this quite superficial comparison, has caused me to search for some term appropriate for our system, purely for the purposes of this essay. If I refer to it henceforth as a post-totalitarian system, I am fully aware that this is perhaps not the most precise term, but I am unable to think of another one. I don't wish to imply by the prefix post that the system is no longer totalitarian. On the contrary, I mean that it is, and this is important, I mean that it is totalitarian in a way fundamentally different from classical dictatorships, different from totalitarianism as we usually understand it. That's the current moment. That right there is the current moment. What is the current moment? Why is it so oppressive? It is fundamentally different from totalitarianism as we usually understand it. This is a new kind of tyranny. 
The woke moment is the post-totalitarian moment. Alright, so now that Havel has established what he means by post-totalitarian, we can move on to the third part of this essay. And the third part is a long part, but it's a very, very important part. So, right now, we are in the month of June. And this part, this next part of the essay, is going to speak directly to our current moment, because June in political parlance, is Rainbow Corporation Month. Every single corporation and business that's funded by their ESG bailouts on Wall Street has to turn their logo rainbow, except, of course, if you are, you know, the Middle East subdivision. Then you keep it the same. But, um, whatever. I guess we just won't notice that at all. No, this is the month where we celebrate the indoctrination and, uh, well, as they say on the street, grooming of children in schools to be anything other than straight. And uh, we celebrate as a virtue the mutilation of children for profit, otherwise known as gender affirmation surgeries, taking advantage of those that are way too young to even think through this life-altering decision at all. It's a disgusting practice. Go ahead and watch Matt Walsh's What is a Woman over at Daily Wire if you want to know more. It's really good. Just a very quick plug for that. I uh, watched it the other day myself, and it's it's a really it's it's a really good documentary, and it's very very well done. So seriously, watch that if you want to get that uh, Pride Month feeling, shall we say? But um, it's not just Pride Month that this section speaks to. Nowadays, people will be putting signs in their yard that saying, in this house, we believe that no one is illegal on stolen land and, you know, that black lives matter and, oh, you know, all, all of the virtue signaling slogans on one nice woke sign. Or they'll have the woke flag, right? They'll have the, um, the uh, intersectionality flag, which keeps changing and it's going to give somebody an epileptic seizure one day. Because it just it just keeps getting worse and worse and more chaotic and it's just it's awful. It is it it is it is a meme for a very very good reason. But all of these symbols, all of these signs serve a very special purpose, and they're a very special um, part, a very integral part of the system that we're living in because they reveal something very very important about how the system actually works. And in this part of the essay, we're going to learn not only why those things are important, but how those things speak to the inner workings of the system that we live in. Again, this post-totalitarian moment that we live in, what role do these signs, these flags, these rainbow logos what role do they play? Well, Havel has the answer. So Havel begins with the famous example of the greengrocer. He writes that the manager of a fruit and vegetable shop places in his window among the onions and carrots the slogan, Workers of the World Unite. I'd like to pause here. For anyone who doesn't know, Workers of the World Unite is a reference to Marx's famous slogan, and also something that I just realized. So it's the Marxian 
genesis of the concept of solidarity. Now, this is just off the top of my head, but it makes sense if you think about it. So, what do the woke activists say nowadays? They say that, oh, we need solidarity. Well, to them, that means that we need to cobble together all of the marginalized, um, historically marginalized groups, all of the gender minorities, the sexual minorities, all of these minority marginalized groups into a coalition with solidarity against the ruling order, whether that be the white supremacy in society or that be the, um, as the gender activists, transgender activists would have it, the heteronormative structures in society. All of this stuff is at root workers of the world unite, right? What are they doing? They are uniting their proletariat, their woke proletariat against the ruling order. So Marx would have it, the workers are uniting against the capitalist system. The woke would have it that the marginalized groups are uniting against the white supremacist heteronormative system, whatever you want to call it. This is the Marxian origins of solidarity right here. And solidarity, by the way, comes from Marcusa, comes from Angela Davis and all that stuff, which later became woke. So anyways, that, that's, a, that's a sidebar, that's a tangent, if you will. Havel, Havel continues, he says, why does the greengrocer do it? What is he trying to communicate to the world? Is he genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among the workers of the world? Is his enthusiasm so great that he feels a irrepressible impulse to acquaint the public with his ideas? Has he really given more than a moment's thought to how such a unification might occur and what it would mean? I think that it can be safely assumed that the overwhelming majority of shopkeepers never think about the slogans they put in their windows, nor do they use them to express their real opinions. That poster was delivered to our greengrocer from the Enterprise headquarters along with the onions and carrots. He puts them all into the window simply because it has been done that way for years, because everyone does it, and because that's the way it has to be. If you were to refuse, there could be trouble. That's important. He could be reproached for not having the proper decoration in his window. Someone might even accuse him of disloyalty. He does it because these things must be done if one is to get along in life. It's one of the thousands of details that guarantee him a relatively tranquil life in harmony with society, as they say. Alright, so in that section, Havel was talking about the coercion of businesses by powerful interests. In Havel's case, the Soviet Union. And in our case, titans of Wall Street, as well as the U.S. government. And believe it or not, the U.S. government actually kind of takes a backseat role in this. It's more of the titans of Wall Street, as we'll see. This coercion, both in Havel's case and in our case, is the coercion to comply with leftist ideology or face punishment. Today in the business world, 
wokeness is being pushed primarily by what are called environmental social governance scores issued to corporations by Titan investment firms on Wall Street. ESG, in the words of investment manager Jerry Bowyer, is a political philosophy pretending to be an investment philosophy. The acronym ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance, as I said just a second ago. Um, Environmental being things like how much carbon emissions a company produces, how green their facilities are, and so forth. How much they comply with the climate change agenda that's all the craze nowadays. Um, Social, literally being social justice, or how much woke diversity, equity, and inclusion activists have torn apart the company from the inside out with critical race theory and other strands of identity Marxism. And finally, governance being the corporate leadership or how many intersectional identity categories a given corporation has occupying their leadership and management positions. Put simply, if intersectionality is not steering the ship, then your company receives a low governance score. So, these ESG scores matter because these corporations, these startups, they could lose access to ESG funds from these investment firms like, again, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, if they aren't sufficiently woke. It's basically a report card, and if you get a low score, then your stock goes down. The value of your company goes down, right? When I'm talking about BlackRock, I'm talking about trillions of dollars in assets under management, right? These are trillions of dollars we're talking about here. These companies basically make Disney, Microsoft, Apple, Google, etc. do their bidding through ESG. Again, environmental social governance. ESG is the reason why all of the major companies nowadays have gone woke. ESG is the reason why you'll see every major company across the face of the earth going all rainbow for Pride Month. It's because of their social score. They want to up that social score. You know, like you wonder why Netflix is producing all the woke content nowadays. Now, I know they just pulled back on it. Maybe they're finally getting a message. I don't know, but all of the um, woke stuff, that's primarily because of ESG. It's It's got other factors too, such as, you know, the political affiliations of the employees in these companies themselves. A gigantic part of it is, again, the ESG scores. As they say, follow the money. Moving on from that, though, moving out of Wall Street and the corporations outside of the business world, the coercion to comply with identity Marxism, otherwise known as wokeness, comes from the Biden administration itself. I know, big surprise there, right? Specifically, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's rule change as to how it interprets Title IX prohibitions on discrimination based on sex, that's Title IX, and this is coming directly from the USDA, 
to include discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So what does that all mean? It means that the Biden administration is threatening to withhold federal funding for school lunches if schools don't comply with its LGBT agenda. Through a reinterpretation of Title IX, the Biden administration is now threatening schools with an investigation resulting in the withdrawal of federal funds for school lunches. We are literally witnessing, in the words of a spokeswoman for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the Biden administration's decision to withhold food from disadvantaged children in order to advance a deranged political agenda. I'll be linking those rule changes from the USDA as well as all of the relevant reporting on the rule changes in the source notes below if you want to check it out. It's it's truly horrific. Like, I can't believe sometimes that I'm actually reading these things. I just try and say it three different ways just so it can truly be understood how horrific. And when I say the Biden administration is pursuing extremist leftist policies, this is what I mean. This is one of those concrete examples that I'm, I'm talking about. This is disgusting. This is disgusting. Ugh. You, like, just read it for yourself, okay? Don't, don't take my word for it. No, like, you don't have to take anything that I say on this podcast and my own word. I link everything that I read to make these podcasts in the source notes below, and I'll be linking all of it below. So, anyways, just moving on from that nightmare, for now, we're going to continue with Havel's essay. So, since we cut off at kind of an awkward point in the essay, I'm going to do a little bit of paraphrasing here. The greengrocer's indifference to the slogan that he put in his window because of the coercion by the state, of course, doesn't mean that his action of putting the slogan in his window has no motive or significance at all, or that the slogan communicates nothing to anyone. The slogan's really a sign, and as such, it contains a subliminal but a very definite message. Verbally, it might be expressed this way. I, the greengrocer, live here and know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be depended on and am beyond reproach. I am obedient, and therefore I have a right to be left in peace. This message, of course, has an addressee. It is, it is addressed above to the greengrocer's superior, and at the same time, it's a shield that protects the greengrocer from potential informers. The slogan's real meaning, therefore, is rooted firmly in the greengrocer's existence, it reflects his vital interests. That's important, but we'll come back to it later. But what are these vital interests? Let us take note. If the greengrocer had been instructed to display the slogan, I'm afraid and therefore unquestioningly obedient, he wouldn't have been nearly as indifferent to its semantics, even though the statement would reflect the truth. The greengrocer would be embarrassed and ashamed to put in such a 
unequivocal statement of his own degradation in the shop window, and quite naturally so, for he's a human being, and thus has a sense of his own dignity. To overcome this complication, his expression of loyalty must take the form of a sign which, at least on its textual surface, indicates a level of disinterested conviction. It must allow the greengrocer to say, What's wrong with the workers of the world uniting? Thus, the sign helps the greengrocer to conceal from himself the low foundations of his obedience, at the same time concealing the low foundations of power. It hides them behind the mask of something high, and that something is ideology. This point cannot be missed to anyone listening to this podcast. The base foundation of the power in our society is ideology. The shield, shall we say, of plausible deniability is provided by ideology. So thus, everything, everything that you see, all of the woke crap, all of the leftism that you see, the disregard of the need of the individual, of the common man, can all be traced back to adherence to ideology. It's ideology that has got us into our current moment. Havel continues, Ideology is a specious way of relating to the world. It offers human beings the illusion of an identity, of dignity, and of morality, while making it easier for them to part with them. As the repository of something suprapersonal, which means above the individual, and objective, it allows, it enables people to deceive their conscience and conceal their true position and their inglorious modus vivendi from the world and from themselves. Which means, all, all, all that is fancy literary talk for saying it allows people to feel good about themselves while at the same time throwing away who they are. It is a very pragmatic, but at the same time, an apparently dignified way of legitimizing what is above, below, and on either side. It is directed toward people and toward God. It is a veil behind which human beings can hide their own fallen existence, their trivialization, and their adaptation to the status quo. It is an excuse that everybody can use from the greengrocer who conceals his fear of losing his job behind an alleged interest in the unification of the workers of the world to the highest functionary, whose interests in staying in power can be cloaked in phrases about service to the working class. Meaning, all of these things, all of these, oh, I believe that Black Lives Matter, I believe that in, in, in empowering marginalized communities, all these things are just ideological concealments behind which lies fear, behind which lies paranoia. The primary excusatory function of ideology, therefore, is to provide people, both as victims and pillars of the post-totalitarian system, with the illusion that the system is in harmony with the human order and the order 
of the universe. All that is to say that the function of ideology is to provide a way for people to not only feel good about complying with the system, but also to allow those same people to legitimize everything going on around them because the ideology says that it is good, it is empowering, it is, as we say today, social justice. And those people, in complying with the ideology, in servicing the ideology, in saying these things like empowering marginalized communities, all, all, all of these nice-sounding words that are really just ideological cloaks, in saying all of these things, they are perpetuating the system. They are perpetuating the ideology by complying and regurgitating the talking points by going along to get along. They are helping the system to move along. Ideology is the ultimate driving force behind the 21st century soft totalitarianism that America is going through today. In addition to ideology, another driving force in American life, another widespread dynamic you could say, is the separation between politicians and their constituencies inside of the United States. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it seems like we elect people and we send them up to Washington just for them to totally forget about us, just for them to totally forget about the needs and political priorities of their constituency in favor of their own political priorities and the needs of whatever lobbyist or special interest group can get into their office first. The separation between the system and the common man is something that I probably will continue to hear about for as long as I remain invested in American politics, okay? It's going to be here, it's been here, it's just a fact of American life, right? And one more thing about the left and the right, as far as, like, this essay goes that I'm reading, The Power of the Powerless, the political insights, the lessons that Havel teaches us in The Power of the Powerless can easily be read by anybody of any political affiliation. I was telling a friend of mine about what I was doing, and he was like, well, why does it have to be just applied to the left and the, you know, the left-winning system that we've got here in the States. And I was like, you know what? You're right. It can be applied regardless of your political affiliation. So if you are more left-winning than I am, listen, I encourage you to read this essay as well because the insights, the lessons that Havel teaches us are timeless. They are truly Amazing. There's a reason why this essay is so famous. So, that being said, Havel writes about this separation between the system and the people who live under it. Havel writes that between the aims of the post-totalitarian system and the aims of life, there's a yawning abyss. While life in its essence moves toward plurality, diversity, independent self-constitution, and self-organization, in short, 
towards the fulfillment of its own freedom. The post-totalitarian system demands conformity, uniformity, and discipline. While life ever strives to create new and improbable structures, the post-totalitarian system contrives to force life into its most probable states. So, this is a central idea of this essay. We've gone over how the system is, at root, ideologically fueled. We're going to learn that ideology is the bind that creates a central driving force inside of the post-totalitarian system. But the third element to this is the separation between the priorities, the aims, the goals of the system, and the aims of life. The separation between the system and the people, put more simply. This is a central idea of this essay. So anybody who's listening to this needs to understand that the post-totalitarian system, the system that I would argue we live under in the States, is diverged from the needs, from the wants of the people. It's totally out of touch, as they say. And look, much has been said about this, so I won't dwell on it for much longer, but it's very important to keep that in mind as I keep reading. All that being said, Havel has more insights into the post-totalitarian system and ideology. Havel writes that ideology in creating a bridge of excuses between the system and the individual spans the abyss between the aims of the system and the aims of life. It pretends that the requirements of the system derive from the requirements of life. It is a world of appearances trying to pass for reality. In other words, one could say that between the Biden administration and the radical leftist Democrats who somehow, somehow still support the Biden administration, because we know that the vast, vast, vast majority of America does not support Biden, one could say that wokeness creates a bridge of excuses between the Biden administration and the leftists who still support it. It spans the abyss between the aims of the administration and the aims of the leftists. It pretends that the administration's goals are also the goals of the leftists, when in reality, the goals of the state are not always good for the individual citizens. So, the bigger picture here is this. Number one, what Havel writes about, that the dynamics of the system are in contrast to what he calls the dynamics of life. Put another way, where the system demands conformity and the centralization of power, life demands freedom and the decentralization of power. It demands that, life demands that the individual citizen become the locus of power instead of the government and some centralized authority being in control over your lives. So imagine this. The Federal Reserve gains unprecedented power over the currency by inventing some digital currency of the future, right? Jerome Powell has been talking about 
this digital currency. So now, and this is all hypothetical, even though it's been talked about again and again, this hasn't happened yet, and this also isn't a rant on, man, we should abolish the Federal Reserve, or we should keep the Federal Reserve. I'm not getting into that in this episode, right? But let's just say that they establish this digital currency and they then gain this unprecedented control over the lives of everyday Americans. The everyday American, the individual citizen, will want to continue to pay with cash. They'll want to continue to be able to buy things that they want to buy, sell things that they want to sell without the interference of the government and the arbitrary standards set by unelected bureaucrats. So, in this instance, in this hypothetical instance, you can see clearly that the individual citizens' interests are not the government's interests. The, as Havel puts it, the aims of life are not the aims of the system. So that's the first part. This contrast between the aims of the system and the aims of the individual. The second part is that ideology provides those who support the system to pretend that the requirements or aims of the system are their own requirements. Through the suffocating power of ideology, people are actually able to deceive themselves into thinking what's good for the system is good for me as well, when in reality, that's not always the case. So, going back to my previous example, somebody could, and this is, by the way, this is off the top of my head here, but just bear with me. Somebody could argue that a digital currency would be a good thing because the government would be able to track things like illegal drug purchases and all sorts of illicit sales. And they could effectively tamp down on this and prevent those illicit items, whatever they be, from being sold, thus creating a more prosperous society at large. But in reality, it's the system that's the main beneficiary because while it allegedly does regulate and nullify, so to speak, these illicit markets even more, it also gives the government more and more and more power over the aims, over the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the transactions of the individual citizen. So in reality, the supporter of the system the, the individual is not the true beneficiary so much as the government is. But through ideology, the individual is able to deceive himself into believing what's good for the system is also good for me. So this framework that we've established of ideological deception that ultimately serves the system in which through ideology people deceive themselves can be applied to a bunch of different policy areas. To test my logic with this, you know, framework that I had ended up developing out of reading this essay, um, or at least this part of the essay, I spent like three days applying this framework to different policy areas, and lo and behold, I really couldn't find an area where the framework wasn't applicable in some way or another. So, to illustrate this, I'm going to be going through, like, two different areas and explaining how it applies. So, 
there's 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 three main elements towards this ideological deception. Okay, number one is the deception. So the individual thinks that a policy imperative or a goal of the state is to their own benefit. It is ultimately benefiting themselves or society at large. So that's the first part, the deception. And then the second part is the deeper underlying benefit that the system experiences from that goal, from that policy. And then the third element is the explanation that while the individual believes that, you know, this policy or goal or whatever is going to benefit them, in reality, the system, the state, the government or whatever is the ultimate beneficiary. And two things to apply this to. So number one is vaccine passports. The supporters of vaccine passports say that it will compel people to get vaccinated and lead to a healthier society writ large. This, this might not be wrong. This may be correct in some instance. The, the delusion doesn't have to be wrong. It just has to be ultimately in greater service of greater benefit to the system than it is to the individual. So, with vaccine passports, what they would also do is allow the government to micromanage the lives of its citizenry in the name of their health. It opens the door to unprecedented power over travel, commerce, and everything in between for government. Because they just deem it a health risk and, oh, that activity or whatever is restricted. Dr. James Lindsay has said that vaccine passports are the gateway to a digital ID. And honestly, it makes sense if you think about it for more than two minutes. So, the third part. The leftists, or the supporters of the vaccine passports, because, you know, there are those so-called conservatives that, you know, support something like a vaccine passport or something like a digital ID. You know, the freaking David French pseudo-conservatives. These people have deceived themselves through an ideologically fueled narrative, in this case, something along the lines of the science or trusting the science, whatever, that through a relinquishment of their privacy, it'll lead for a better outcome to themselves. But in reality, the government, the system, the unelected bureaucrats are the true beneficiaries. Another instance would be Roe versus Wade, if you can believe it. So supporters of Roe say that, oh, it's about a woman's right to choose. Not getting into, not even touching the abortion issue, even though this happens to deal with abortion. And I'm just, you know, putting it in here because it's, it's, it's relevant at this point. I'm not even going to touch the, the, the merits of, of pro-life or, you know, some arguments or pro-choice or whatever. Again, this doesn't have to deal with abortion itself. This just has to deal with the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade. So, supporters of Roe, again, say that it's about a woman's right to choose. But in reality, Roe gave the federal government power to compel abortion onto states and took away state-by-state -state jurisprudence on an issue through a reinterpretation of the 14th Amendment. This consolidated power in the state... In, in, in the federal government to guarantee abortions throughout the country and gave the federal government more authority 
over what individual states could or could not do. So thus, supporters of Roe have deceived themselves to believe what is good for the federal government, more authority for the federal government, is good for them, pro-choice, when in reality, the federal government is the real beneficiary of this, since the federal government gains, ultimately, more power over the state governments. This is just about the constitutionality of it, and the constitutionality alone allows the framework of ideological deception to be applied. It can also be applied to gun control and even gas prices and decarbonization, right? But I'm not going to get into that because we need to move on. But I wanted to outline those two policy areas, just really drill this in, that ideological deception is a gigantic part of the post-totalitarian system. And individuals deceiving themselves to the ultimate benefit of the system is what's going on today in a gigantic amount of our political debates. Ideology convinces people in the face of obvious injustice and exploitation that the harm and alienation they're experiencing is good, necessary, and noble. Ideology turns systemic abuse and indifference into a source of heroic dignity. The world of appearances that Havel talks about is a world of narratives, which hide the aims of the system behind the aims of the individual. And these aims are simultaneously said to have their origin in the needs of the people, because the system says, oh, it's about you. It's about the individual, the individual citizen. It's about keeping you safe. It's about, for example, reducing gun violence, right? They're said to have their interests aligned with the people. But in reality, it originates outside of them from the system. And the relationship between these goals are... I'm sorry, the relationship between the system's goals and the individual is obscured through the power of ideology. And just finally, governments can use ideology to create excuses for increasing their own power. And through ideology, government's able to surround itself in a veil of excusatory arguments all the while increasing its own power, which is exactly what's happening with most of these policy debates, whether they be on climate change, decarbonization, the, uh, the great transition that Joe Biden's trying to push America into, whatever the hell it is, because it's not a great transition, it's a very painful transition that is hurting everyday Americans through having to pay half their paycheck at the gas pump. If, if you haven't heard of the green energy transition that the Biden administration is talking about recently, I recommend you look it up because it is quite the, shall we say, Orwellian talking point. Anyways, anyways, we need to move on from this. Havel continues with this relation of ideology to the system. He writes that the post-totalitarian system touches people at every step, but it does so with its ideological gloves on. This is why life in the system is so thoroughly permeated with hypocrisy and lies. Government by bureaucracy is called popular government. 
the working class is enslaved in the name of the working class. That's like a great nutshell summary of what the Soviet Union was, the working class being enslaved in the name of the working class. The complete degradation of the individual is presented as his ultimate liberation, or in today's terms, the complete degradation of the individual is called pursuing equity. Depriving people of information is called making it available, or depriving people of information is called reducing misinformation and fact-checking. The use of power to manipulate is called the public control of power, and the arbitrary abuse of power is called observing the legal code. Or, being applied to big tech, we could say that the arbitrary abuse of power is called observing section 230. The repression of culture is called its development. The expansion of imperial influence is presented as support for the oppressed. More left-leaning individuals who believe that America is a colonizing nation can definitely pull something from that, for sure. But, of course, Havel wrote this in response to the Soviet Union, so it's just a little bit ironic, but whatever, whatever. <laughs> um, the lack of free expression, Havel writes, becomes the highest form of freedom. The lack of free expression, in today's terms, would be reducing hate speech. Whatever that means. Apparently it means whatever speech or whatever ideas go against the narratives of the day, but we've known that for quite some time now. It's been evident for quite some time now. Banning independent thought becomes the most scientific of worldviews, or banning independent thought becomes prioritizing reliable sources, as today would have it, and military occupation becomes fraternal assistance. Again, something that is applicable to Havel's day, and especially applicable to where he lived in, in Czechoslovakia um, after, the, uh, after the Prague Spring, but not so much applicable to, to our current day and age. I mean, I, like, I, I don't see Florida being occupied by the military, and I don't see that happening anytime soon in the future. Anyways, anyways. Here's the big, here's the big Grand Slam passage from this. Because the regime is captive to its own lies, it must falsify everything. It falsifies the past, it falsifies the present, and it falsifies the future. It falsifies statistics. It pretends not to possess an omnipotent and unprincipled police apparatus. It pretends to respect human rights. It pretends to persecute no one. It pretends to fear nothing. It pretends to pretend nothing. Individuals, and this is important, Individuals need not believe all of these mystifications, but they must behave as though they did, or they must at least tolerate them in silence or get along well with those who work with them. For this reason, however, they must live within a lie. They need not accept the lie. It's enough for them to have accepted their life with it and in it. For, by this very fact, individuals confirm the system, fulfill the system, make the system, and are the system. So, this passage is admittedly a little bit tricky. Just to clarify, he's talking about, and I'm talking about, the people who disagree with the system but behave as though they agree. Those Democrats who may not believe 
in radical wokeness, intersectionality, but when pressed on it, wave the epileptic seizure intersectionality flag and, you know, put signs in their yard anyways. In some, those who betray their own conscience to comply, tolerate, and work along with the system, even though they disagree, those are the people who confirm the system. The non-political people, the people that aren't political, those are not the people who are complicit in confirming and making up the system, okay? It's not a bad thing to be non-political, but it is a bad thing to betray your conscience to live within a lie. It's not a bad thing to be a Democrat. Obviously, people can support parts of something and disagree with other parts. It's just a fact of life. You're not, you're, like, you, you, you rarely agree with something completely, 100%. That's just how beliefs work, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is, again, there's something wrong with going along to get along, to, to betray your own conscience, to confirm the system, even though you disagree. Because, after all, by living a lie, we help a lie to live. Living within the lie, it turns out, and helping the lie to live is a incredibly important aspect of the post-totalitarian system. It's how it goes on. It is how it functions. As Havel writes, if ideology was originally a bridge between the system and the individual as an individual, then the moment he steps onto this bridge, it becomes at the same time a bridge between the system and the individual as a component of the system. That is, if ideology originally facilitated by acting outwardly the constitution of power by serving as a, as a psychological excuse, then from the moment that excuse is accepted, it constitutes power inwardly, becoming an active component of that power. It begins to function as a principal instrument of ritual communication within the system of power. This is a very difficult passage. If you need to rewind and listen to it, I encourage you to. But in essence, what that's saying is that the moment that an individual chooses to parrot the talking points or to betray their own conscience to live peacefully within the system, they become the principal instrument of ritual communication within the system of power. They themselves, as a person, become an active component of that power by regurgitating the ideology. Something I was saying earlier, but hopefully just became a little more clear. And Havel continues with this idea. He says, Yet, as we've seen, ideology becomes at the same time an increasingly important component of power, a pillar providing it with both excusatory legitimacy and an inner coherence. As this aspect grows in importance and as it gradually loses touch with reality, it acquires a peculiar but very real strength. It becomes reality itself, albeit a reality altogether self-contained, one that on certain levels 
chiefly inside the power structure, may have even greater weight than reality as such. And here is a gigantic point about wokeness and the Biden administration. Increasingly, the virtuosity of the ritual becomes more important than the reality hidden behind it. The significance of phenomena no longer derives from the phenomena themselves, but from their locus as concepts in the ideological context. Reality doesn't shape theory, but rather the reverse. That right there is why these woke protests and activism, they only become more woke and more ridiculous as time goes on. Because the ritual of the woke becomes more important to them than the reality that they're blind to. As, they, as, as the woke lose touch with, it, with this reality in favor of social justice, their reality becomes social justice. They, 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 they lose contact with reality and the theory becomes the reality to them. So to illustrate this, I I want you to step back for a second, just like step back for a second, and um, think of a cultist, right, becoming more and more and more enveloped in the cult over time, right. Eventually, everything around the cultist can only be seen in terms of the cult. He or she has totally lost touch with reality in favor of the doctrine. Thus. Havel writes, power gradually draws closer to ideology than it does to reality. It draws its strength from theory and becomes entirely dependent on it. This inevitably leads, of course, to a paradoxical result. Rather than theory, or rather ideology, serving power, power begins to serve ideology. It is as though ideology has appropriated power from power as though it has become dictator itself. It then appears that theory itself, ritual itself, ideology itself, makes decisions that affect people and not the other way around. This is what I meant by ideology, the, the ideology of social justice, of identity Marxism, being the binding element for the Biden administration. Everything that they do, for the most part, for, for, the, for the great majority of actions that they take, can be drawn back to theory. As Havel writes, it can be said, therefore, that ideology is as that instrument of internal communication which assures the power structure of an inner cohesion is, in the post-totalitarian system, something that transcends the physical aspects of power something that dominates it to a dis to a considerable degree and therefore tends to assure its continuity as well it is one of the pillars of the system's external stability this pillar however is built on a very unstable foundation it is built on lies it works only as long as people are willing to live within the lie. That is to say that, once again, the ideology of identity Marxism, wokeness, whatever you want to call it, is the binding force of 
continuity within the Biden administration and also the current day leftist cultural establishment. The system under which we live depends upon people in and out of power betraying their consciences and doing as they are told by the system regardless of whether or not they agree. It depends on people going along to get along, basically. The post-totalitarian system functions only via ritualistic practice in service to ideology. And with that, I am done with Havel for now. Obviously, there's going to be a part two because I haven't even gotten into where counterculture comes in. You know, I was, I was way back at the beginning, near the beginning of the episode, I was talking about, you know, things like Brave Books and The Daily Wire and all these, as Havel writes, independent initiatives of society, right? I was talking about all the counterculture stuff. Didn't even touch on that in this episode. I'll touch on that in part two. Additionally, questions such as where the where do the non-political people stand and how the hell do we resist something that is so deeply rooted in society? Those questions are going to be the focus of part two. So keep your eyes out for that. In sum, in conclusion, I'm just going to look, I know this episode was a lot. So I'm going to try and sum it up here as best I can. Feel free to skip ahead if you get it. But here goes. So the post-totalitarian system is one in which totalitarianism isn't expressed in outright brute force, but rather through an ideological permeation of society to the benefit of the ruling system. An ideology permeates society in two main ways. The first is through the people themselves. Through compliance with ideology, the system is reinforced through individuals regurgitating slogans and narratives that justify the current state of affairs. Remember, the greengrocer and the slogan, Workers of the World Unite. These ideological narratives have a powerful effect on people. They allow individuals to feel good about supporting the system, provide plausible deniability against critique, and allow individuals to justify what's going on around them. Additionally, ideology allows individuals to conflate the aims of the system with their own. It makes them believe that what's good for the system is good for me, when in reality, this is not always the case. And finally, by going along to get along within a fundamentally false, ideologically reinforced system, individuals, regardless of whether or not they believe the lie, perpetuate the system and ensure its survival. And the second way ideology permeates society is through the system itself. So ideology allows the system to control its citizenry through monitoring their compliance with the state's ideology or its ideologically fueled goals. Ideology is also the centrifugal force on which the entire system rests. It's the constant through which everything the system does can be drawn back to. The post-totalitarian system is also one in which there's no room for effective political opposition against the establishment. There's ossification of the system itself, and there's falsification of otherwise reliable metrics, among other things. It has been said that we live in an age of narratives. 
But in light of this episode, I'd like to say that we live in an age of post-totalitarianism. The narratives are the permeation of ideology throughout the system, and the age of narratives is thus an abdication of individual rationality in favor of ideological conformity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. When I first started this podcast, there was no way that I ever could have imagined doing an episode well over an hour. And it's amazing to me that this podcast has grown so much and come so far. So thanks so much for listening to it. And it it really means the world to me. Honestly, it does. As usual, don't forget to check out Surfshark VPN. I actually just clicked the link to check on the deal myself. And the deal has actually gotten sweeter. Yes. <laughs> it has taken me <laughs> it's taken me so long to do this episode. I'm, I mean honestly guys, this episode has taken me more than a month straight of work to do. It's taken me so long to complete this episode that the deal has actually changed from the beginning of the episode. It's, it's, well, it hasn't really changed so much as it's gotten better. So now you can get your first two months free for Surfshark VPN and you can get Surfshark's antivirus free. So you can not only keep yourself anonymous and secure on the internet, but you can also protect your computer from harmful viruses maybe even viruses that track what you're typing on your keyboard so they can get all your passwords and you know all of your sensitive information. Protect yourself today online and offline with Surfshark VPN and the included Surfshark antivirus. Check it out in the podcast description. In addition to that, please check out, if, if you've gotten this far, Check out my Instagram, which I'll also be including in the podcast description. It's the best place to keep up with the podcast. And uh, the other thing is that in the course of making this episode, I actually made a YouTube video about, about an excerpt from this episode. And this episode is also going to be uploaded to YouTube. But check the YouTube channel out in the podcast description as well. And you can watch my podcasts on your TV, on your laptop, wherever you can access YouTube. You can now watch my podcasts. You can now listen to it on YouTube. So what's better than that, you know? Check out the Instagram, check out Surfshark, check out YouTube. All of them can be found in the podcast description. In the meantime, though, as always, have a more perfect day.